Hi everyone, this is the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya and this is episode number 53 and it's with my good friend Banoffi or Martha Brown as some of you might know her by. Again, this is a COVID-19 destruction podcast. It was actually recorded before COVID hit back in January or February of this year, 2020, when Banoffi was touring up in Brisbane and it was just before she released her debut album, Look At Us Now, Dad, on the 22nd of Feb. So we talk a little bit about her feelings on her imminent album release and the tours that she was planning, which obviously ended up not being able to happen, sadly. But hopefully they will be able to happen one day soon. And in the meantime, you should all go check out her fantastic album. This is how Pitchfork reviewed it. They said, Martha Brown goes from Charlie XCX's band member to pop singer on her debut, tackling intergenerational trauma and the painful path to self-understanding with a melodic bubblegum sound. I don't know about you, but that definitely makes me want to hear what it sounds like. Um, Again, this podcast has quite a little bit of swearing, so not ideal to listen to with kids, bit of drug and mental health talk too. Banoffy's strange show story was illustrated by the amazing singer Your Smith. You can check out more of her stuff at yoursmithforever.com or on the Your Smith Instagram page. As always, all the show illustrations can be found on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Send me a message if you want to. I love hearing from you. Rate and subscribe if you want to. I'll love you forever. Um, I really hope everyone's going okay. Here we go, episode number 53, Banoffee. think that I have like a weird condition where um if someone asks me to spell something I can't not say rude words oh so I'm like s for s for scrotum e for ejaculation (laughs) (laughs) j for jizz a for asshole oh my god I need to start doing that on the phone when people ask me for my flight reference numbers (laughs) z for g for g spot um V for vagina, C for cunt. Three for threesome. Three for threesome. <laughs> two for number twos. <laughs> One, that means we we. One, you know, we. One. <laughs> you know, we. You know. I'm going to leave all that in. Do it. You can use any of that. <laughs> Sad true selves. Martha. It's so nice to have you on the podcast finally. I know. Thank you for having me. I feel like it's been maybe the longest um, talk about the podcast to actually doing the podcast ever of anyone I've talked to in my life. (laughs) I don't want to hold that record. (laughs) That's not something to be proud of. You are definitely the most unreliable, flaky person (laughs) I've had on this podcast. No, no, no. It's just because you're always in Brisbane for a minute. Yeah, a hot second. And you come into my life, you come into my house <laughs> and you leave me early in the morning. With dirty sheets. With dirty sheets. <laughs> That's it. 
No, it's always so nice to have you and I'm really excited that we get to spend a day together today. Me too. And that we're in the studio doing the podcast. I know. Thank you for having me in here. No, I'm just so happy to have you here. It's really nice that you get to still tour Australia a bunch even though you live in LA now. Mm, I love it. I've seen you quite a few times in the last couple of years. I feel like um, you're killing it here and in other places. Thank you. I don't know if I'm killing it, but I am refusing to die. So that's part of the journey. Yes, part of <laughs> I feel like refusing to die is a vital part of success. Right. I'm still here. I'm still here. <laughs> but so what I sometimes like to do in these podcasts is think of my first memory of the person, especially if it's someone that I've been friends with a lot of years. And one of my first memories of you is um, you used to have a band with your sister called Otto Udo Mm -hmm. and um, our bands played together quite a bit or when I started playing solo, we played together a bunch back then. We did. And I remember a bunch of my friends pretty much saying, these two sisters are angels. Like you look like angels and you sing like angels and I was like, I wasn't like dubious of it, but I, I was like, You're like, fuck these I, girls. No. <laughs> I was like, I'll wait and make my own opinions. And then um, I saw you and I heard you sing and I was like, holy shit, they are beautiful angels. Aww. So my first memory of you is um, your, yeah, just your beautiful singing voice. And, you know, you and your sister Hazel, you kind of looked similar at the time. You both had like long brown hair in top buns. Yeah. And it was pretty special. We were very cult-esque, you know. (laughs) We were trying to start something. No one followed, so. (laughs) But can you tell me what you remember of that band, Otto Udo? Um, That was such a special time in my life. Um, So it was me and my sister Hazel and our drummer, Kishore, and that was the first band I was in. I'd often sung back up for my sister before that, um, but that was the first time I'd been in, like, an equal band. And, yeah, we we made, what would you call it, like, wonky folk music. Yeah, like experimental folk. Yeah, very of the time, yeah. you know. Pots and pans and... Pots and pans. The word baritone. quirky probably came up a lot. <laughs> baritone guitar and keyboards. Yes. Um, a farfisa that broke All a the lot. Time. Yeah. Um, but that was really special. I loved singing with my sister, even though we fought like mad. Did you? I yeah. don't remember you fighting back then. On stage, sometimes <laughs> we'd be like, by the way, she got the lyric wrong. No, she got the lyric wrong. And then we'd both look at each other and be like, when this show is over, I'm going to slap you. <laughs> Um, but it was so special. (laughs) And then we started touring with you. I remember we went on that tour together and we had a competition of who could say finger (laughs) the most times on stage, (laughs) which is the perfect word. And I've tried with so many other bands to have that competition on tour and no one wants to do it. Yeah. I don't know why people wouldn't want to throw the word finger into all of their songs. Wimps. It's also really hard not to laugh when you're doing it. And I think we held it together really well. Oh, yeah. Because we played a few shows to not very many people. And then we also played some really massive shows. Did we? It was a weird... Yeah, I remember we sold out the um, Northcote Social Club. I mean, when I say oh, yeah. massive, it was like massive to us You at the time. sold out the Northcote Social Club. 
No, we did it. I don't know. We did it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I feel like it was such a nice time and we all got it to know each best. other really well. We yeah, all, and we, we all stayed, stayed in the same bed one night. <laughs> oh, my God. And we made. I forgot about that. <laughs> we all, we made Kishore stay in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor Kishore. <laughs> Fuck, that was so much fun. It's cool to think most people I tour with, I don't know about you, but like a lot of people I tour with, I always say, oh, my God, let's stay in touch. Mm. And we almost know as soon as you say it that you don't. It's never going to happen. Yeah. You're always on tour or even if you liked someone, you like them within a context you and sure? then you leave and you're like, oh, like I conveniently liked you because otherwise you would have driven me insane. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I love that annoying thing about you. It's so endearing, you know, but we've stayed friends ever since. Yeah. And I still feel like every time I come to Brisbane, it's like no time has passed. We're I just know. right back in. It's so nice. I know. Do you think that it maybe has something to do with our Steiner education? Probably. I think that maybe people that go to Steiner schools, um, which we both did, mm. uh, maybe uh, they feel a kinship with other Steiner kids. Yeah, there's a certain sort of um, welcoming or like relaxed yeah. energy about being friends. Yeah. I don't ever feel like even though I've noticed you're really tidy and I'm not tidy, <laughs> but I would never feel like in your house – I never feel like, oh, don't move that on the bench or like, oh, don't. No. I'm like, oh, you can move whatever you want. I feel so at home in your home, probably oh. too much, but no, you, well, you did say last night you came home from your gig and you <laughs> ate peanut butter out of our jar. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I got a torch. I got, I turned the torch on on my phone and went into your kitchen and was like, where's the peanut butter? <laughs> and I was like opening all the cupboards really slowly. <laughs> I also ate Vegemite from the jar. With really? I like to mix them. Together? Yeah. Like in the same mouthful? Yeah, it's like a hoisiny satay oh. vibe, you know? Sometimes I, you don't want sweet peanut butter. Sure. Okay, I'm going to try that. Mm. I think maybe everyone should try that. Yeah, as a vegan, I'll tell you a really yummy yeah. um, toast option for you. Okay. Because you can't have eggs on toast. Yeah. But if you have toast with peanut butter and Vegemite or peanut butter and Promite, whatever you vibe, okay. I'm um I'm a fan of both. Yeah. Um, and then tofu and like a little bit of like cherry tomatoes mm. or something fresh. Mm. Ooh. But also, I like a lot of things with Vegemite on them that no one else likes. And yeah, didn't you try and become a Vegemite ambassador? Yeah, I did, and they fucking rejected me. They didn't want an ambassador. Well, they didn't need it. Their business is going pretty well. Look, they said they didn't want an ambassador. Then someone emailed me months later and was like, oh, my God, I thought of you. Like, Vegemite asked me to play, like, this party they were doing. And I was like, what the hell? Like, yeah, I am so happy for this girl. She got a great show. But, like, I put in the yards. I did. I mean, I got Charlie XEX to shout me out. I was on the Taylor tour bringing Vegemite around to everyone. I shot myself in the Taylor catering tent with Vegemite. Did you get Taylor Swift to hold Vegemite though? I didn't. Well. No. <laughs> I thought I might have been tackled. Have done, you could have got, gotten further with your – I reckon as soon as they – if they saw Taylor with Vegemite, they might have listened. They might have listened. But, I mean, I had some of the artwork that people were sending in because I wanted people to send in artwork of me with Vegemite. Um, like, I had people from Russia wow. making Vegemite posters. I was like, Russia oh. has obviously never had Vegemite, yeah. you know, on their 
grocery shelves. Yeah. And here I am getting rations to make Vegemite art. Come on. And they didn't listen. No, my sister messaged them. My sister emailed them the day before my birthday and said, (laughs) I love my sister, bless her. She emailed them. I'd already emailed them many times. I was getting everyone to tweet at them and like I went hard. (laughs) And she emailed them. She's like, she sounds much more professional than me. And she sent it from her um, business email and just said, look, I'm writing to let you know that my sister has been campaigning really hard for Vegemite. Um, She consumes more Vegemite than anyone I know. I think I probably hold a record. Like I'm not being arrogant on this or exaggerating. I just, I mean, mum bought me four jars and it's been a month that I've been in Australia and I've gone through all four jars. Holy moly. I just love the shit. I believe it. If you're you're eating Vegemite out of the jar, that's next Mm. level Vegemite. I think it's not. Yeah, I think it's definitely an addiction and something that I probably just get withdrawals from. It's probably not even a taste thing anymore. Yeah. But... She emailed them was like, it's her birthday tomorrow. Please, at least just write back. Like, do something. Did they never write back to you before that? Nah. So then they wrote back and I was so excited. It was my birthday and I was like, yes. They wrote back and they said, your sister really loves you. She's written in and really pleaded us to, like, have a look at your campaign. And we think it's great. Thank you so much for being such an avid supporter. Unfortunately, we're not looking for an ambassador. And I was like, pricks. Could have written back the day after my birthday. <laughs> but I'm still going. I decided someone told me I should just pick back up. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, just keep I'm doing pick it. pick back up. I love that you're so passionate about Vegemite. That's the truly Australian thing to do. I know. It's I'm very – I'm not passionate about many things, but Vegemite is up there. So you mentioned going on tour with Taylor Swift, and I know you get asked this all the time, but I just have to ask – um, so you were playing in Charlie XCX's band. Uh-huh. I went to the gig and it was wild. It was nuts. Um, you did 56, 54 shows. 57. 57. <laughs> Just to be precise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you did 57 shows around the world. Isn't that an insane thing to do? Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this at breakfast today about how it would probably feel more insane if it was slightly less huge. Mm. I think it was so – it's such a big tour and something that was so out of my comfort zone that some sort of protective mechanism went off in my head and just compartmentalized it and as soon as it finished, it was erased. Yeah. And now I'm like, I don't even know if I did that. Yeah. Um it was nuts. Yeah, it was definitely obviously the biggest tour I've ever been on. The biggest tour that's ever been on tour. Yeah. The biggest production. It's the biggest of the big. That's insane. So you were playing sports arenas, like sports yeah. fields. Yeah. Um, do, do you have any memory of like any of those shows being crazier than any others? Uh, yeah. There were a couple that really stood out. Um Toronto why did that one stick out everyone was just so there to party I felt like there were a lot more Charlie XEX fans at that show Mm. um so everyone was there super early um Toronto and Tokyo were the two shows that were the loudest 
And when 80,000 people scream, it's like it doesn't matter how loud your in-ears are turned up. It is the loudest thing you've ever heard. Like you can't hear anything else except just this like rumbling noise. Sounds like a stampede. That's crazy. Um, So those two were nuts. I remember looking at my bandmates and just being like, holy shit, can you even hear the music? (laughs) Like what's going on? (laughs) And so you're a – were you a three-piece band? You're a four-piece? Three-piece band with Charlie Apple. Yeah. So – and you were playing keyboards, yeah, um, and samples and stuff, uh huh, um, and working the faders and working the faders. So, uh, for those of you listening, Martha and I have had this conversation a lot in our <laughs> life about how the theatre of um, performance is Oof. so funny that we have, you know, very rarely, I'm going to say very rarely, we have to pretend that we're, uh, you know fading something up or down <laughs> just to look involved just you to know? look like you're doing something <laughs> which is always a problem with backing track is you know like how much do you want to actually do live yeah and then how much theater do you put into it to make it look believable yeah and what is generous to the crowd in terms of what is giving them a good performance mm. versus what is just giving them fake performance yeah. <laughs> there were definitely times on the charlie set where i was like I've been standing here for too long. I'm going to just work that fader and just turn a knob that has no function. Whilst <laughs> and do moshing. it with your whole arm. Whole arm. There's a real art. <laughs> yeah. It's a full body movement. It's a full body you know. fader. Yeah. You've got to imagine yourself, you know, as a snake. Your yeah. whole body curls around that fader knob. <laughs> I love that. I've actually only done it once. Um, where I've put my whole body into a knob. Oh, me, me too. So been a one time, Karen. <laughs> yeah, just one time. Just one time. Um, but yeah, I actually do remember the one time that I that I did mine, and I felt truly guilty about it. I was like, that fader did nothing, and I feel I feel like a fraud. <laughs> you see, you feel guilty the first time. All right. By the fifth, sixth, seventh, I've heard <laughs> from friends that once it becomes a regular thing, um. It's pretty empowering, you know. And your body turns into a snake. Yeah. You just well, you become I need to, an animal. Maybe I need to get I've back heard. into it. You've heard. Yeah, I've yeah. heard. So let's go. Let's talk about your incredible solo project, Banoffy. Um, do people say Banoffy or Banoffy? People say all sorts of things. Yeah. I say Banoffy. Yeah. Americans say Banoffy. Yeah. Um, Doesn't matter. I don't I care. Yeah. I... Just like when we were in Otto Uto, part of the appeal for me is I like people being like, how do you say it? Um, can you tell me? Because I remember when you first started doing it, it was pretty different to how it is now. Yeah. And you were just playing a prophet on stage and singing through some um, like transformer pedals. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a whole production. Mm. Can you tell me about when you first started doing it, can you tell? Can you remember what you were trying to do back then? Yeah, I think um, I'll probably go back to that aesthetic at some point. When I first started Banoffi, I was just beginning my love affair with analog synthesizers and I wanted to write pop songs, I guess, but in a way that were like, formatted like folk I guess Mm. so for me it was about like having one instrument 
and a vocal and they were very sort of like sad dreamy ballads um and I didn't I wasn't that in touch with my sense of gender at the time and I felt like a lot of my music and my face and my whole representation was like very feminine in a way that I wasn't comfortable with and I used a lot of effects pedals to sort of try and um change the way I presented so I had a lot of like low octaves Mm. and distortion pedals and things that at the time I felt expressed like my sense of self a bit better which I think is like interesting because then as my music progressed and I grew up and like sort of explored that stuff a bit more I became way more comfortable with presenting um, however I wanted to present, whether that be femme or mask or whatever. And that also changed the way my music sounded a little bit because yeah. I wasn't as sort of set on things um, sounding typically masculine or aggressive or, you know, having those juxtapositions because I was like, oh, I'm just comfortable in it yeah. now. So I didn't need to express it as much. So I think that's like how my music became like glossier at some points and then you know, moved into like a lot of different sort of eras of production. Yeah. And you've always done a lot of your own production as well, which I love. Thanks. It's very messy. No, it's amazing. And I also, I don't know, I think there's this time when there weren't very many female producers and um, I feel like you've been part of the movement to like actually be able to say to people, no, I made this. Yeah. I made all of this and I, you know, I know what I'm doing. Thank you. Um, I was completely lying when I said I knew what I was doing. (laughs) But it was important for me to say it anyway. I always find when I'm producing stuff, um, I love when things come as a surprise. You know, when I don't, when you're just experimenting and you you come up with something that you're like, oh, wow, I totally didn't know what I was doing and I made this cool thing. Yeah. Now I know about that. I think exploring software without a manual is one of the best ways to do it it's just like pressing buttons and moving shit around and being like oh cool this is how this works yeah um so so going from so when you first started doing it you were you know you you had your profit were you playing ableton i was playing ableton yeah actually no i started off on garage band yeah right um and i put some demos up on soundcloud that were garage band productions that was super duper simple and I don't even really know why I did that, but it was cool because when that happened, I realized that people liked the music. And so I went back into the studio and sort of re-recorded those demos and then released an EP. Yeah, right. And then um, and then, how did you go from that sort of simplicity to coming up with all of your amazing complicated stuff later on it was interesting at the start I was set on people knowing that I had produced everything and that I had written everything and it was really important for me to have that ownership over my music yeah and once I'd done that I became really open to collaborating because I was like okay like I know I can do it but maybe it would be more fun to like learn things off other people or see what Mm. people can add and collaborating really helped me become a better producer because I was watching people do things yeah totally I started making songs with other people like Oscar Keysong um who taught me so much about production Mm. um and Martin King who who used to work with Oscar taught me a lot and then I came over to the states and once I was collaborating over here 
it was cool because people were, I guess, in the studio with me knowing that I produced. So it wasn't this like, oh, a top line has come in and she's only going to sing the melody. We would sort of share the chair Mm. as you say, you know, people who don't produce, you know, sometimes you walk into a studio and it's like a computer and one big chair and then there's like a couch down the back and you're like, cool do I just like sit behind you (laughs) while you do everything and then I like give an idea and you're like yeah cool idea you know (laughs) but they would always be like do you want to sit in the chair and I'd be like yeah oh that's nice I want to sit in the chair and so then did you start doing like co-writes with people straight away when you moved to LA I did which was really scary I remember my first session I went in with this hip-hop producer and if you'd never been to LA or been into like an LA session you might not know that like I would say 98% of sessions everyone is like stoned off their nut and I'd never smoked a bong before (laughs) and I came in and they were like oh cool like hey Benoffi come in we're like just setting up a bong do you want some and I was like oh like I I guess so I was like I've never had a bong oh no and they were like oh my god she's never had a bong like this is so (laughs) exciting and my manager called like two hours into the session and like a session would normally go for a good like five to eight hours sure and was like just checking how the session's going and I was like oh like I greened out within like the first 10 (laughs) minutes and they took me home like I'm gone (laughs) he was like what I was like I'd never had a bong before and I had I had some bong (laughs) and I had I feel horrible (laughs) um but then after that they went a bit smoother (laughs) were you like no thanks I don't do bong yeah, I was I like, do bongs. bong not for me. <laughs> just lied. I'm allergic to bongs. <laughs> I do like them. Yeah, they're great. I'd yeah, love a good super, bong, but I've got an allergy. Fun. I used to be able to get really high and now I'm allergic. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I can't smoke weed and write. I become paranoid that everything I'm writing is terrible and everyone's laughing at me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't smoke weed at all. I, I just fall asleep do as well. Do you fall yeah. asleep? No, I honestly haven't done it in so long. I can't. I can't do it. I, can't. I don't like it. No, me neither. Um, but okay. So, how did you ev- how did you set up this session? Like, how did you did you like get hooked up by your managers or something? Yeah. So, and then is there payment for the session? No. So you just go in and you write songs with people, and then if they get used, you split the royalties. All oh, right. So you either write for yourself or for someone else. So it depends yeah. what the sessions for but a lot of the time I would go into sessions and I wouldn't know whether it was for me or for another artist and then it would just like get put into this folder of like songs I'd written and I could show people or whatever that's cool yeah it was fun and but you need like a manager to hook it up yeah you need someone like booking you those sessions either a publisher or a manager yeah and yeah I was lucky enough that I found a manager when I was in Australia after I released Ninja and Got It, that were my first two singles. Um, and he flew me over there and I just went straight into sessions. Yeah. But it was an interesting experience because I do remember arriving at LAX and being like, I've only spoken to this person on email. This could be a catfish situation. Oh, yeah. This could... Scary. Yeah. It was. Now that I think back, I'm like, I'm very lucky that was all legit. Yeah. I mean, people just want to make money, don't they? So... Yeah. And if you, you know, if they like stuff that you've done and obviously those like first two singles were really catchy and really like, you can tell that you're a really good singer. So they probably were like, this is in the back. Well, 
little did they know it was going to be years before I released anything else. (laughs) And their first mistake was offering you a bong. Oh, exactly. They saw very quickly, this girl is not made for this industry. (laughs) So talk me through then getting, um, you know, the confidence to release something new. Um, I'm still working on the confidence part. Mm. It's not out for another month. So uh, we'll see if I break down. My my A&R messaged me this morning and said, people's heads are going to explode when this came out. And I was like, well, tell me how that goes because mine's already (laughs) exploded and I can't take in the world. So you'll witness it and I won't. I think that it's quite normal to have a nervous breakdown before, just before you release an album. Yeah, I've had so many. And, and then I also think that it's quite normal to um, have a bit of a breakdown just after it's released. I'm, I think that's what I'm most nervous for is a lot of musicians speak about this is when you're working on something day in, day out, and it's also so personal to you. Yeah. For you, it feels like when it, gets released the whole world will stop Mm -hmm. but it won't it'll go on blogs and it you know it could do well or it could crash either way but even if it does well it's going to do well to an extent and in your mind it should be everything in the world because it took everything in you to write it and I think that mentally preparing myself for the fact that it's going to be released and one minute after it's released, it's just in the world now. Yeah, and then it's in the eye of the beholder. You have no control over how people react to it yeah. or what people say or think about it. Yeah, it goes into an archive quite quickly and you just need to be focusing on making new things and yeah. being proud of having made it, not about how it goes. And I think that that's the scariest bit for me. Yeah, it is hard, but I think that... Um you know, we spoke this morning at breakfast about how we're so adaptable as human beings. And Mm. I think that this is another thing that you'll adapt to. It'll go out, you'll have a bit of a like moment internally. (laughs) And then, and then you'll adapt and you'll go, it doesn't matter what people think. I had a, I'm really proud of it. Are you feeling proud of it at the moment? I do. I feel really proud of it. Um, I feel proud that I finally finished something because that's really hard for me so that's like the main thing yeah and when is it coming out has it got a release date Feb 22nd (gasps) yeah that's so exciting I'm really losing my mind actually I've never been able to um I'm really good at starting things and working really hard on them but I'm never able to feel like I've finished something Mm. even if I finish it it generally sits in a folder of like, do I like it? Do I not? So for me to have this 14 track record in the world is going to be a really big moment for me to see that I'm capable of doing that. Of course. And then you can do lots of shows to support the album. You know, there's a whole cycle. I have this insane um, issue with imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. where I constantly think that I don't really belong in the music world or that I'm not like a real musician. Um, and so I don't know whether it's going to do anything to cure that. Like if I'm like, I've got an album out now, I'm not an imposter, but I think it's going to challenge it in interesting ways. And doing the tour with the album will be an interesting way of like talking back to that weird other voice in my head. That's like, you don't belong. Why, why is that voice so loud? Um, 
I don't know. It's interesting. Like even when you just asked me about what it's like being a producer, I was like, I'm not a producer. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that about myself too, but you are and I am. Yeah. And we're doing just fine. We're doing all kinds of stuff. I don't understand where it comes from. It's interesting because when people challenge it and ask me then, okay, well, what do you classify yourself as? Because they're like, so music is your career. It's the only thing you earn money off. And you sing and you play instruments and you, you know, play controllers and, and work like a program. Mm. So what what's like your occupation? I'm like, well, I'm definitely not a singer because I don't really know how to sing. And I've sort of made up, I write all my songs around the limitations that my voice has. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, that's not my thing. And then I'm like, I'm definitely not a producer because... I just do like the easy parts and then I contact people. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Can you do it better than me? Can you help? But then I'm like, well, shut the fuck up. I yeah. must be all of it. I'm you just... are all of it. Absolutely 100%. Yeah. And I think even if I don't feel that way, it's important to fake feeling that way so that other women can convince themselves of it too. Cause... Yeah. And – I think that it's interesting that you say you're not a singer because you're a beautiful singer and you've always, you know, even since the I was just telling you about my first memory of you <laughs> was that you're a beautiful singer. Thank you. And hopefully you know that a little bit and you, you know that you're really talented. I like to sing. I think maybe it's a little sister complex. Yeah. You know, I was in a band with my older sister who, I mean – just to plug Mary Glenn, you should listen to Mary Glenn. Oh, my gosh. So amazing. Oh, my God. Insane. But, you know, Hazel, my sister, has a voice that she's kind of incapable of going out of tune. Like her voice just hits notes. Like you can see it doing the steps. It's very visual. And for me, I've always sort of slurred up to notes or down to notes and found my voice like quite difficult to control. Mm. And I think that that um, – lack of control makes me feel like I'm a fraud saying that I'm a singer because I'm like doesn't that mean you're supposed to know how to use your voice whereas I'm I guess a lot I'm like is it gonna do what I want it to do tonight (laughs) but that's exciting we shall see I think it's exciting to sort of experiment with your voice yeah why not yeah you're experimenting in all forms and that still makes you a professional I mean if the Gallaghers are singers then I guess I'm a singer right (laughs) Well, I hope that that voice quietens down for you. Yeah, it's beginning to. As I grow up, I don't uh, I don't feel more confident, but I feel like I give less of a shit. You know, yeah. you, as you grow, you just start being like, oh, my God, that, bo- that voice is so boring mm-hmm. and also like so self-involved. Like sometimes insecurities to me when I notice them coming up, I'm like, oh, this is a lack of confidence, but it's also like an obsession with myself. Like just think outside it. Yeah. Because it's boring and it doesn't do anyone any good. That's a really, really hard thing to stop doing though. Yeah. To stop obsessing over yourself. Yeah. But once you realize you're doing it, you feel so gross. You're like, oh God, do something useful (laughs) instead of thinking about that you didn't hit that note, you know? But a good thing to realize is that everybody is so self-involved that they're not going to worry about your faults. Exactly. Everybody has that voice inside them that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing a good job. 
and that and then you come along and they're like she's fine what about how I'm not doing a good job exactly (laughs) yeah you have to remember that yeah tell me about how you start a song I wish I was like some people who had a way um Generally, I feel like my best songs have always been started when, which is bad because I don't want to rely on um, sadness, but they have always started when um, something has like hit me um, and taken me unawares and then I've been like, what the fuck do I do with this? I'm Mm. just going to go into the studio. So it's interesting, like there's a song on my new record called Chevron which is about um, when you hit hit rock bottom overseas. And I wrote it the night that I realized that I'd run out of money and I was feeling really down. I couldn't afford to pay to finish my record. And I called two of my best friends and I was like, I think I'm going to have to move home. Mm. Like I don't – I think I'm failing at what I plan to do with my life. Um, and they pleaded me to meet them for dinner so that we could sort of brainstorm it. And I said, I don't have enough money for dinner. I can't meet you for dinner. And they were like, we'll pay, like, we'll buy you dinner. Just Mm. come and we'll talk it out. So I was like, fine. And so I got on the freeway and was driving out to this dumpling place that we go and my car start filled with smoke. Oh my God. And I pulled over on the side of the freeway and was like, I... I what what do I do I can't even like I can't even drive to meet my friends to brainstorm this and I called the tow service and they said you've run out of free towing so it's gonna cost you a hundred dollars for us to come and I was bargaining with them on the phone saying I don't have a hundred dollars I'm literally either gonna leave this car on the side of the road and it's going to end up in the tip with all my belongings in it or you can come and get it and I was like, you can have the car. You can just take the car as yeah. long as you let me, you know, take it somewhere where I can safely get all my luggage out of it. Yeah. Um, and I was like, my life is fucked. Yeah. And then I went home and wrote about it and wrote about how much I was missing home and what the hell I was doing there. And it's one of my favorite songs on the Aww. record. And so I guess my only answer is that it often comes – Um. My songwriting always comes at times where I think I'm definitely not in the zone to be mm. writing. When I go in to write a song, and I'm like, I'm going to write a song today. Sometimes it works out, but generally I feel like those songs lack life that mm. the ones that come at really odd times yeah. do. So something that's coming deep within a, from a, a feeling of despair or something that's really affected you yeah, is much more likely to be something that will be sustainable. and Yeah. Yeah. I'm turning that around and making sure that I make the most of good moments mm. now. I felt like after my first two EPs, there was, and I'm sure other musicians go through this, but I was worried that maybe I had to be sad to write good music because all my songs were really sad and I was like what do I do like I want to be happy (laughs) like I want to look after myself and like you know like eat well and like be a functional human but then my art's gonna be shit um (laughs) so now I'm concentrating on making sure that when 
something great happens, I make opportunity to write about that in the same way I know I do when something bad happens. Yeah. So now I think my answer is more I write when something unexpected happens in my life instead of I write when my life falls to shit. (laughs) Yeah. I want to ask you about when you hit rock bottom, Mm. how did you get up? I have this weird thing that happens in my life and you can call it superstition and a theory and you can say that I'm like airy-fairy but it seems to always be the way that like whenever something really bad happens, within like two or three days something – of equal sort of severity in the opposite direction happens. So something really great. And it was funny because when my car broke down, I said to my housemates who were like, we're so sorry. Like we know you're in a real slump. I was like, it's okay. This just means something awesome is about to happen. And they were like, really? I was like, it's the way karma works. Trust me, something great's happening. And the next day I was nannying. um, I was nannying some kids that I really didn't like. And I was like, (laughs) fuck my life but I have to look after you because <laughs> no. I have no cash yeah I was like I literally paid someone to p- give my cars to the yeah. wreckers I was like I didn't even get to sell it yeah um and I got a call saying do you want to go on tour with Charlie XEX oh wow and that happened right after that yeah yeah and they said you know it's a really long tour and I was like yeah yeah, yeah cool is it paid <laughs> and they were like well yeah but we'll send you the details and I was like, I'll do it I was like, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then everything changed, you know. I had a paid job. I was also working with an artist that I really respected. And it really helped Benoffi as well because I was playing all the shows with Charlie after. Yeah, you did all the after parties. Yeah, and so everything just quickly changed and it just reinforced my belief in everything always balances out. So. A lot of people say that I'm weirdly good at dealing with crises. I don't think I'm that good at dealing with them. I just know Mm. that it means good things. So instead of focusing on like whatever that is, now I'm like, oh, my God, what's coming? This means something's (laughs) coming. I and love it always that. comes. I love that. Every time. I have I have a similar thing. I have a, a weird thing in my mind that whenever something is really stressful or something shitty happens, my inner dialogue is um, it's all going to be fine though. Everything's always going to be fine. Yeah, you know you're going to be looking back on it and telling it as a story. Yeah. Like so soon. Oh, totally. And I, yeah, and I, and I always have that trust that it, everything's going to be fine, which is I think the more I think about it, not something that I should be I should be so lucky and feel great that that's where my mind goes because not many people yeah. have that. I'm now witnessing people who don't have that mm. and it sucks. Yeah. Because they think thing is is like it's not like worse things happen to us like yeah. every everyone goes through their shit um and but i've just realized that when i'm going through the same thing as someone else it just seems so much worse for them mm. because i'm i'm like it, literally it's going to be fine like yeah but that sounds so dismissive of me to say in the moment I mean it's probably easier to say that to yourself than to 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 other people yeah yeah me and my partner um were catching a plane the other day and it was delayed twice and then was cancelled and lol he's gonna hear this and be like fuck you I wasn't that sooky but like he was so (laughs) sooky 
Like, I was like, oh my God, like deal with this. It's going to be fine. And I was sort of just like, I was annoyed, but I was also like laughing about it and was just a bit like, okay, what's next? Yeah. And he was so upset. And then we like got to stay in this like fun, weird hotel and we had like a really fun night. And in the morning he was like, that turned out to be really nice. And I was like, I fucking told you. Like, yeah. it's fine. It's always going to be fine. And he was I like, told you. <laughs> you dealt with that really well. I was like, I know. <laughs> I was like, because shit just fucking happens. I knew something really great was going to happen because something yeah. bad happened. It's always <laughs> the way. So just instead of dealing with the crap thing, don't even think about it. Just be bracing yourself for like the really fun thing that's happening, you know, a day later. I love that so much. I love that. I never knew that you had that because, yeah, that's another thing that like you and I share. Yeah, it happens. People often witness one like a trademark of a Banoffee set is a technical difficulty. Oh, really? Every time. Doesn't matter what it is. Even when... Here's a really good example. Even when, so my co-producer on the record, his name's Eve, and he Benoffi proofed my set for me, which was his version of being like, you cannot break anything in this. Like nothing <laughs> is going to break because I have padded everything. I've plugged it all in perfectly. Like nothing you can do can sabotage this set because something always goes wrong. And I got on stage and I was like, yes, I'm Benoffi proofed. Like nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and halfway through the first song, the wind blew so hard that it blew my laptop and all my synths off the stage. No. And I was like, I can't help it. It's what yeah, happens. That's but <laughs> it's really that's served unlucky. me well having this happy-go-lucky attitude where I'm like, oh, well, that happened. Because yeah. it can ruin a set if you freak out about that stuff. Oh, yeah. And I just laugh about it and keep going. And it comes from those Farfisa days. Yeah. Of They just always broke mid-set. Yeah. And I always had another one in the van that I could just sort of go out and put on stage. And yep. I think it's just better to laugh about it. Oh, definitely. I actually remember a show that we played together um, in Toowoomba. Yeah. And um, we were all sort of depressed at the time about the – the kinds of people that were at that show. Fuck, I remember that show. Because <laughs> I remember, well, first of all, I was playing a, I think I was playing a Farfisa mm-hmm. that I'd never played before. I just bought it and um, it made these insane noises, like the loudest growl. Out I remember. Of, yeah. And then um, I think I just played one of your keyboards in the end. Yeah. Um, but I also remember thinking, yeah, this is, this is fine. It's not a big deal that this is broken and I have to be off stage for a minute to like try and find another keyboard to play. I remember that so well. You've just yeah. brought that back. And then after the show, somebody came up to us and said, like the three of you and Hazel and I were sitting together and someone came up to us and he said, um, it's really good that you girls are giving it a go. Oh my God. <laughs> die. <laughs> just go die. I think I had to hold you guys back from killing him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck, I want to go on tour with you again. But I also felt a very um, instant, like I was both of your older sister vibe. I was very protective mm-hmm. of you. You had a lot of creeps creeping around. And the I creeps. had to, I felt like I had to protect everyone from the I had to protect the beautiful angels from the creepy dudes. You were a beautiful angel. (laughs) 
it was it was definitely a joint effort. <laughs> but I do remember. I remember that so well now. Yeah. That was a weird show, Toowoomba. You know what? It's so funny. I wish I could be like, oh, how the times have changed. But I, um, you know, I got off the plane in Brisbane. No, in Sydney. And I have a 25 kilo SKB rack case. Yeah. Um, that is clearly a rack case. Yeah. And if anyone else was carrying it, they'd be like, oh, are you a musician? Or like, you know, what's in here? Are you mm-hmm. a DJ or whatever? Mm-hmm. And the Uber driver picked it up and he said, gosh, this is a lot of makeup. Is this a oh. makeup case? And I just looked at him and was like, one fucking star. Like, yeah. I don't care how nice you are, you're getting one star. I wish wow. we could do no stars. But um, I posted it on my Instagram and the first comment I got was from my best friend who went, so now you have to apologize to all your makeup artist friends. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be hard to have 25 kilos of makeup. I think so, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Not. I don't maybe know. Maybe we're being disrespectful mind, to makeup artists. I know, but I was pissed. Yeah. I was also like, it's clear. Like, look at the case. Yeah. Um, well, people don't know what rat cases look like, I guess. But still, that's fucked. Yeah. It still happens. I It happens to me all the time, too. People probably yeah. think it's so cool that you know how to use synthesizers. Yeah, people don't understand. Like, people quite often ask me, do you know what all of these knobs do? Are you joking? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're like, you okay. know what? Yeah. I was looking out of the crowd and wondering that exact same thing. <laughs> Zing. What the fuck do all you knobs do? <laughs> I wish that's what I'd said. Oh. I think I just said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I know it's weird. Um, how do you go with so when you do, you know, I feel like you're on tour quite often. How do you go with keeping up your health on tour? Because I know you've had some pretty insane health problems. Mm. Um, I worry about you being away from home a lot. Oh, you tell me about how you how you keep healthy on tour. It's hard. I think the main thing I remember first and foremost is to look after my mental health on tour Mm. which is challenging um how do you do that I do that by scheduling in enough alone time because I'm really good at faking an extroverted personality Mm. but like technically in terms of where I gain my energy from I guess I'm an introvert um and I do need a good like eight hours of the day on my own um So I always make sure that I find that. Um, And then secondly, I think that, well, for one, once my mental health is in order, my physical health is a lot much easier to look after. I'm one of those people that if I'm feeling low, I very quickly will also become sick. Yeah. Um, I have a neurological pain disorder called fibromyalgia, which is linked to mental health. And so when I get depressed or if I get tired or anxious, I often then get really bad body pains. I can get migraines um, and chronic fatigue comes with it and I can't get out of bed. So so awful. It's really annoying. But I also realise that so many people have it, um, predominantly women. Mm. And I guess my belief about it is that 
you know, in years to come will realise that it was a very gendered and sort of misogynistic diagnosis where people just didn't want to deal with, you know, a plethora of different health issues that women were experiencing and put them yeah. all under one umbrella. Sure. Um, but that's the first and foremost thing I do, which is, yeah, to make sure that I do spend time alone and that I'm journaling and validating myself in ways that make me feel good yeah. and that makes me really ready to look after my body yeah um so you think that the diagnosis is actually not a not a thing it's actually many I things i don't fucking believe it i've done a lot of research on it and read a lot about it and there are a lot of articles online about sort of the um you know, sort of like the patriarchal influence on medicine and the mm. way that a lot of the research done on a lot of um, like mainly female um, disorders are inaccurate mm. or just they don't really care too much about doing much research in them. And, you know, I do think about it like if some of my male friends went into the the GP and expressed all the symptoms that I've gone in and expressed so many times. I just can't imagine them being told to just go home and take a Panadol. Like, is that what people tell you to do? Yeah, that That's was awful. years of my life. Oh. And then when I got diagnosed with fibro, um, it seemed like such a relief at the beginning. So I was like, finally, like I'm not crazy. There yeah. is something going on and someone can help me. And they're like, oh no, fibromyalgia pretty much just means undiagnosable pain symptoms okay and what it is is you go to a rheumatologist um and they do all these weird tests on you and then they tell you you've got it and the only thing you can do is to take this drug called Lyrica which is a mood stabilizer and all it does is it affects the same sort of I guess neurological pathways um that um, trigger these pains right. and stops them coming but it's really bad for you so they're like you can go on Lyrica or you can have Panadine Fort and just sort of be knocked out all the time whoa um, That's, there's, those aren't great options they're not and I think that if more men were coming in with these symptoms we would have found out what the hell is going on by now yeah um, so it's really interesting there's a lot of reading on it and there are a lot of sort of groups online support groups of like how different people deal with it. Mm. But I deal with it through um, exercise, which I've always been recommended and I've become like an, a very enthusiastic exerciser, mm -hmm. which helps me on tour. Like I do yoga, I box um, and I do weights, which the stronger my body is and the more cardio that people do, it's supposed to help fibro. Okay. Um, it's supposed to help migraines too. So I do that. You know, when I was on the Charlie tour, the stress of being on such a big tour was giving me such bad fibro symptoms that I was going into the doctor. I didn't want to be fired. Yeah. So I would go into the doctor before rehearsals and get steroid injections oh. and these um, like painkiller, like ibuprofen injected into oh my butt. Oh my God. And then I'd go in and like pretend I was okay for the day. Um, and go home and I had like five or six day long migraines at a time Jesus just Christ. from the stress. That's awful. Um, yeah, but I've worked out a rhythm, you know. I, I do exercise and I um, spend a lot of time on my own. And the and time on your own, you is it quiet time or is it like? It can be anything. It can be anything. It could be um, 
I realized on tour with Charlie that we spent so much time in indoors, like it was planes or stadiums mm. or hotels, like that's yeah. all it was. So I started making sure that I walked um, with no shoes on as much as I could Oh wow! and tried to go outside with no shoes on as much as I could because I felt like having that connection to any type of ground, even if I couldn't get outside, felt really different and yeah. made me grounded. Um, everyone sort of laughed at me for the first while and then people started being like, oh, I'm going to Earth with Benoffi. And they'd come <laughs> to the park with me and they'd be like, oh, my God, I feel new. I was like, I know, it really makes a difference. That's so nice. Yeah. That's good that you found little little ways of helping. Yeah, you've yeah. got to, otherwise you go insane. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. And I suppose now you've got some nice time with family in Australia as well. Mm. Um got a very very cute nephew that you've oh. been showing me photos and videos of early pearly is if you Holy ask him his molly his full name he He's says so it's early pearly and what's what's your name again oh my name's waba 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 <laughs> so cute that stuff all helps it helps so much yeah. i'm really close to my sisters and um my entire family so coming home is a really big part of like securing the longevity of my career, I think, because yeah. I need to have those moments of like remembering who I am. Totally. And also just never let yourself give up or die. That's yeah. The, that's the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> still here, motherfuckers. So I want to ask you my very last question, which is the question I ask everyone. Yeah. What is your strangest show experience? So... I thought about this this morning when I realized we were doing this. And is it okay that my strangest one is way back in Otto Uto days? Of course. Whenever. Here you go. <laughs> Brace yourself. I am excited. Okay. It's not that weird. But so the strangest one I can think of was playing with Otto Udo in Salt Lake City, which Salt Lake City listeners, nothing wrong with Salt Lake City, but... I mean, Mormons I do, do really weird big, me out a bit. I've got a really big audience in Salt Lake City. Okay, let's cut that. <laughs> oh, okay, you don't. I was like, oh, I'm shit. I'm sure that nobody from Salt Lake City has ever listened to this. Well, also, if you're a Mormon, <laughs> you know that a lot of people think you're weird. So, like, okay, you can, I mean, Say is not even saying that. Benoffi's saying it. <laughs> and also, I accept all religions, but I do think you're all weird. So, we'll put that out there, too. Yeah, everyone's weird. Everyone's fucking weird. Anyway, so I'm in this city where I swear everyone is blonde and blue-eyed, like yourself here. Mm -hmm. Everyone's underage and it's a Sunday, which alcohol is banned. Okay. So everyone's sober, underage. Everyone sort of looks the same. We go down. (laughs) Everyone looks like me. Everyone looks like you. (laughs) We go down into the floor, um, the basement of a record store, um, and it's the only place that is open on um a sunday was this record store and a chinese restaurant and so we order chinese food we go down into this record store and i've got bad altitude sickness oh i've got bad altitude sickness and i'm like guys i feel really wonky they're like oh it's probably just the altitude like you'll be fine um i'm like all right cool so I'm starving. We've like barely eaten that day. They say nothing's open because it's a Sunday. It's like the day of rest for Mormons, I guess. Yeah. Um, so 
we haven't eaten in so long and I eat like a whole fucking carton of noodles Mm -hmm. and I'm full to the brim. Yeah. And then we start playing our show and I'm looking out. I'm sick as well. So I'm looking out and I'm like, everyone looks the same. Like, what's going on? Where am I? And I start like almost hallucinating. I'm like, I can't tell who I'm playing to. Everyone looks beautiful. Like, like glowing and I'm like am I in heaven like and I'm looking around and I look at Hazel and she's like you're cooked like what's going on with you and I'm like wow Kishore starts drumming Kishore in auto Udo plays a drum kit with saucepans attached so he's playing my mum's spaghetti saucepan but he has this old like soup pot next to him and I halfway through the set realize i'm gonna vomit oh no but i'm so scared of my big sister at this point in time (laughs) that i'm like she's gonna kill me if i vomit and this show is ruined she's gonna kill me (laughs) and so i think it's a good idea to try and fake that i haven't vomited so whilst she's singing and when my harmony drops out and she's got the lead i just turn around pick up my mother's pot spew into the pot put it down, turn around and then just keep singing. (laughs) And I was so embarrassed and like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is cooked. And we finished the set and people start coming up to me and saying what a great set it was. And I was like, I'm so sorry I spewed. Like I have altitude sickness. You're all so beautiful as well. Like you're all like this, like you kind of, you all look similar and you got these beautiful blue eyes and you're all glowing. They're like, what the hell is she talking about? I'm like, you're all glowing and then the altitude and I spewed everywhere and no one had even noticed. I'd done it so seamlessly that no one had noticed. And then I outed myself to the entire (laughs) crowd. I was like, yeah, I spewed into the pot. (laughs) I looked out. You were all glowing. I couldn't work out where I was and then I spewed and they were like, we thought nothing happened. What are you talking about? And I was like, And was your sister angry? She rolled her eyes a bunch but I think she was a little impressed that I'd managed to keep I it going. I would have been so impressed. It was like a win for me yeah. you know and it was funny because then later on when when Hazel quit music you know she was like well I really expected a lot of you from you know you you were a teenager and we like did some pretty hardcore touring. Yeah. And I was like yeah you yeah. did. Remember that time I spewed in a pot? <laughs> I mean because I was scared of you. How lucky that there was a pot. So lucky. I, I mean, if I'd spewed on the floor, the whole thing just would have been over. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for telling me that story. <laughs> and thank you so much for doing the podcast. I loved talking to you as thank always. Thank you for having me. Let's go talk some more on the couch. Yes, let's do it. <laughs>